Thank you, Janice, and thank you, Dan and Parker. Thank you, ladies, for beautiful, beautiful music tonight. We're in our Bible study from the Acts of the Apostles. Gorky covered the first 12 verses of chapter 23, but let me summarize just a bit so we can see where we are this evening. Paul has made his missionary journeys, and now he's headed to Jerusalem. He has many companions with him as he goes, for he has taken this famine relief offering for the Jews in Jerusalem, the believers in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. And wrapped up in the idea of this offering is that if the Gentiles have received a spiritual inheritance from the Jews, then they ought to share their material possessions because the Jewish believers are going through a hard time. There's a famine. So he's gone to Philippi and to Corinth and the churches to which he has started and visited. And he's taken an offering and brought representatives. And he's all worried for if the church in Jerusalem receives the offering, then they have received the Gentile mission. If they reject the offering, they have rejected his Gentile mission. And there are Jews out there who are saying, Paul is telling folk not to obey the law of Moses, and that Paul himself is not being a good Jew. None of that true, of course, but rumors were rampant on the apostle, and so he's nervous. We can see at the end of Romans when he says, I'm headed to Jerusalem, pray for me. Back just a bit earlier in Acts, the prophet Agabus has bound himself with Paul's belt and said, the one who owes this belt will be bound in Jerusalem. Fellow believers have tried to tell Paul, you should not go to Jerusalem. It might not go well. They have tried to convince him to avoid it. Paul says he's ready to die, that his mission will take him till to Jerusalem, and he will surely go. In the first few verses of chapter 23 that Corky covered last week, the commander has had the Sanhedrin gather together. Paul has been arrested there at the temple. He's accused of taking a Gentile to the temple, which we will see tonight he did not do, but the, well, the emotions are running high, and the commander saved Paul from probably death from Jewish hands. The council is called together. Paul begins in 23.1, and Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brothers, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And Ananias commands them, the high priest, to strike Paul in the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law? You order me to be struck? The bystander said, you revile God's high priest. And Paul said, I wasn't aware, brethren, that he was a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. But perceiving that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out to the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. 
Paul was smart enough to realize that on that Sanhedrin, though they were a minority, they had great influence for they were popular with the people that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. And so he tried to position himself with them that it was belief in the resurrection versus disbelief in the resurrection. And he was standing with the Pharisees for he was not only a Pharisee, he was the son of a Pharisee. Therefore, he said, I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. You notice that kind of matches what Peter told us this morning. Hope is based upon one thing, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And as he said this, verse 7, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Exactly what Paul was trying to accomplish. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. And the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there arose a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue, heedily saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. The Pharisees believed in the spirit and the angels. The Sadducees didn't, so you see why they're phrasing it that way. Suppose an angel, which you don't believe in, Sadducees, has spoken to this Pharisee. So they began to take the side, at least for the moment, of Paul. And a great dissension was developing. The commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. In order the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And the night, the Lord stood by his side and said, Take courage. Have you solemnly witnessed to me in Jerusalem? So you must witness at Rome also. Paul had been led to go to Jerusalem with the gospel despite the dangers. And now the Lord stands before him and says, just like you preach the gospel in Jerusalem, you will are destined and you will preach the gospel in the capital city of the empire. You will preach in Rome. Verse 12 is our new material. What we find here, there are 40 Jews who make a vow. They take an oath. I won't eat, I won't drink until Paul is dead. That's a pretty dangerous oath to take. It means you better kill Paul. I won't enjoy any nourishment at all until Paul is dead. Look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves on an oath saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They go to the chief priests and the elders and they say, Go to the commander and tell him tomorrow that you want to research some more. You want to hear what Paul has to say. You need to further investigate and examine what this preacher is saying, this Pharisee. And then when he is headed toward you, we will ambush him and we will kill him. Look at the end of 15, 15. We will slay him before he comes near the place. But Paul's nephew, look there, verse 16. The son of Paul's sister heard about the ambush. Now, who is Paul's sister? Could you give me her name? 
If you can, then you have found it somewhere else by divine revelation because this is the only time we know anything about his sister or his nephew. We know very little about Paul's family, but here we're thankful for this piece of the puzzle that his sister has a son, and the son overhears the plan that they're going to call Paul before the Sanhedrin again, and while the Roman commander is taking him, they will ambush for they cannot eat or drink until Paul is slain. So he goes and tells Paul in verse 16. Paul calls one of the centurions, says to him, take this young man, the commander. He knows something that the commander needs to know. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately, what is it? What do you need to report to me? And he said, verse 20, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them. For more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they're ready and waiting for the promise or the word or the agreement from you. Therefore, the commander let the young man go, instructing him, don't tell anyone that you have told me about this plan. Let's keep it a secret. Well, Lysias changes, the commander changes the plans immediately. He doesn't wait till tomorrow, for the Jews are forming a plan. He sends Paul that very night, about 9 p.m., he sends him to Caesarea. That was the government, the governor, the procurator, whatever translation you use. Paul had been charged with a capital crime. It was only the procurator or the governor who could hear and assign a capital punishment. Paul's a Roman citizen, don't forget. So a lesser official like the commander, like Lysias, could make no decision about Paul's case. And so Paul travels bound on the way to Caesarea. And he called to him to the centurions, verse 23. The commander did and said, now I want you to count the soldiers here. Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea. Along with those 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. That's almost, that's over a fourth of the cohort, the thousand that were assigned to keep peace in Jerusalem. There's 40 Jews going to ambush, or they're going to be surprised. They're going to meet 270 Roman soldiers, 70 of them on horseback, 200 of them with long spears. It looks like the odds are in Rome's favor once again. That shows how seriously Lysias takes the threat of these 40 Jews and others who might help them. He heads out that very night, moving Paul in the darkness in fact, he even puts Paul on a horse, 
Verse 24, provide a mount to put Paul on, bringing him safely to Felix, the governor. Then Claudius Lysias, the commander, writes the following letter to Felix. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came upon them with the troops and rescued him, having learned he was a Roman. Are you the hero of your own telling, of your own stories? Do you ever write things with a little bit of a slant that might not be completely accurate? Have you ever heard the retelling of your own episodes? That's kind of true, but that's not exactly true, is it? The fact of the matter is Lysias did come upon Paul while the Jews were beating him, but he was going to take Paul away, and he was, had him bound, chained, and he was about to scourge him. He didn't know Paul was a Roman citizen. They had the whip drawn back in the hand, and Paul said, that's kind of an odd thing to do to a Roman citizen. And Lysias said, you're a Roman citizen. He cost me a lot to be a Roman citizen, said the commander. And Paul said, I didn't buy it. I was born a Roman citizen. So the way he's telling it to the governor is he rescued Paul because he knew he was a Roman citizen. No, Lysias, you were about to beat him, about to break the law and be in trouble yourself until Paul protested himself that he was a born citizen of Rome. Well, the enhanced narrative continues in verse 28. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council and found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. Now, there's the nucleus of what is true. What the commander says, I listened to the trial, this Jewish trial before the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin as best I could, and it sounds like it's a Jewish dispute and maybe he's guilty of something in regard to the Jewish law, but I, I can't see anything in regard to Roman law that would be deserving of death. I don't even find any reason to put the man in prison. Verse 29. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, verse 30, I sent him to you at once, instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So, Lysias is smart enough to pass the bucks on to the governor, to Felix. And now Felix must hear the case as they make their travel. So the soldiers, verse 31, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Now that would be about 35 miles of the 60-mile trip as it would be from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Antipatris was about 35 miles into it. They're leaving at 9 at night. It would have been a long trip to have no stopover by the soldiers, especially the ones on foot, but they made it. Verse 33, they finally make it to Caesarea. They deliver the letter to the governor, to Felix, about Paul and his case. He read it. He asked him what province Paul was. He learned that he was from Cilicia. And he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, saying, take him away to Herod's palace. Chapter 24. 
after five days. So Paul is under arrest for these five days. They're waiting on the accusers to come before they can have the trial before the governor. And five days later, here comes Ananias, a high priest, some elders, and they have an attorney by the name of Tertullus. Now, here's the question. Was Tertullus Jewish or Gentile? It's likely that he might have been a Gentile. They might have hired a Gentile lawyer who knew the Roman law better than they did to present the Jewish case before the Gentile governor. So Tertullus, well-versed in perhaps Roman law, maybe if he was a Jew, he was a Jew who knew the Roman law pretty well, they brought charges against Paul. Verse 2, after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Your mother might have told you growing up, flattery will get you nowhere. Well, Tertullus' mother never told him that because Felix was a crummy governor. He didn't keep the peace. The Jews hated him. He didn't do anything for the Jews. And you listen to Tertullus, Gentile or Jew, is arguing on behalf of the Jews. He acts like Felix is their best friend. He is buttering the bread, as my grandmother would have said. Listen to this opening speech. In fact, before he spends a long time before he ever gets to the problem with the Apostle Paul. Since we have, through you, attained much peace. No, they haven't. In fact, the governor's one charge was to keep peace. The Romans loved Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And they were very intent on keeping peace and all, over all the lands that were part of the empire. And so Felix couldn't, uh, he couldn't risk any uprising. And so they were praising him for how good he was at keeping the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And reality was it was a very violent place. The only other time that Jerusalem was more violent than under the time of Felix was right before the fall. Of Jerusalem when it was nothing but total violence, of course. Since we have through you attained much peace, and since your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, you've done, you have done so many wonderful things for the Jews. He had done nothing for the Jews. But you are so wonderful Felix, we acknowledge your wonder, verse 3, in every way and everywhere, not just Felix, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But I may, I don't want to weary you any further, I beg you, grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. There aren't any real charges against Paul, and so he has to try to turn it into calling Paul, a rebel rouser, someone who was threatening the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, in order to make a case at all. He says, you're so great, Felix. I'll be brief. I don't want to wear you out. And so he begins his charges. And, well, the first thing he says is this. We found this man to be a real pest, a fellow who stirs up dissension among the Jews throughout the world. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So the first charge would be the charge that bothered Rome. It sounds similar to the charge against Jesus before Pilate. He's a troublemaker. 
He's stirring up riotous mobs amongst the Jews throughout the entire civilized world. He is no friend, this Paul, of the Pax Romana. In fact, he's causing you a great deal of trouble. Now, that's not, back in chapter 21, verse 28, that's not what the Asian Jews had accused him of when he was arrested. He was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple. That was the actual accusation against Paul. Well, Felix, he would have been attentive to a charge about someone threatening the peace on his watch. The second charge was that he was a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, that one's certainly true. I'll, I'll give him that. Tertullus is right about that. Paul was a Christian leader, if you want to call that the sect of the Nazarene. In fact, he tried to link this Nazarene sect as being troublemakers everywhere, when in reality we know that God's people are a people of peace. Well, the third charge was another matter. The third charge, he accuses him, look at verse 6, he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. And we wanted to judge him according to our own law. But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. Well, the third charge is that he'd violate the temple. Now, the Asian Jews had seen him with some Gentiles earlier, and they supposed that he had brought them into the temple area, and he had not brought the Gentiles into the temple area. But that was the, the original arrest and the beating that he received. And in fact, the Jews, if he had broken that charge, they probably would have been allowed to beat him to death on that one regard, violating the temple. They did allow the Jews to police their own temple, but... Your commander, Lysias, interrupted our, our execution, our carrying out our own law. And now we want to bring these things before you, verse 8. And you will see, if you look at the evidence, Tertullus argues, you will see, Felix, that he is guilty as charged. Well, Paul is now allowed to make his defense. The governor, verse 10, he nodded at Paul, your turn. Let's hear your defense. Paul uses a little flattery himself. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Well, he didn't flatter quite as much. He just says, you've been on the job a while. I guess that, if you can't say anything nice, you could at least acknowledge the facts. I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem. I've not been around causing a lot of trouble in Jerusalem. In fact, I've only been there. This is the 12th day since, so I haven't even been around to cause a lot of trouble. He makes, as he begins, his defense. I went up to Jerusalem, verse 11, actually to worship. And then he makes the argument, neither in the temple nor in the synagogues, nor in the city of Jerusalem itself, that they find me carrying on discussion with anyone causing a riot. So first of all, as offense, he says, I haven't caused a riot anywhere, not in the temple, not in the synagogue, not in the city. There's been no riotous spirit within me, not anywhere. I dare anyone to prove differently, he seems to be saying. In fact, verse 13, they can't prove the charges to which they accuse me. 
But this I admit to you. I am not a riotous man, but I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. I love that Acts description of Christianity, followers of the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one's come to the Father but my, me. The way of salvation is the way of Christ. If you mean, if you're calling being a part of a sect that I'm a follower of the way, God's way, the way of the Christos Jesus, the Christ Jesus, I am a follower of the way. And in fact, in following the way, I am, I am doing so in accordance with the law, the Old Testament, and the prophets, the Old Testament. I have hope in God. Now, where do we always find hope? Remember, which these men cherish themselves there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. There it is. Hope. I have hope in the resurrection. In this view also, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. Now, after several years, I'm bringing alms to my nation. Remember, he's collecting that famine relief offering to present the offerings. In which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were certain Jews from Asia. And then he says something like this. If I'm really guilty of defiling the temple about bringing a Gentile in here, why aren't the Asian Jews, the ones who saw me do it, if they really saw me do it, wouldn't they testify in person? Obviously they would, and they didn't, so he did not. They ought to be present before you, verse 19. To make an accusation like that. Or, or let these men, let them tell what misdeed I've done. Other than this one statement I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. What I'm guilty of is being a follower of the way and having the hope of God that is based on the empty tomb of the Christ, the resurrection of the dead. Now, Felix having a more exact knowledge about the way. Now, how does Felix know very much about Christianity? Does that strike you kind of odd there? How does he know? How does Felix know about the way? He knows it because he has a, a Jewish wife. He's had three wives. All of them were princesses. And, well, the third wife is a Jewishish, Drusilla. And so he says, Knowing more about the way, he says, I'm going to wait till Lysias comes. Now, he's just buying time. Lysias has already written what he found. He already summarized the case and said, I don't see anything but Jewish law here. This guy didn't even deserve prison, much less being put to death. But Felix, being the man who can never make a decision and doesn't want to set anybody, says, I'm just going to wait till the commander comes. And so he leaves Paul in prison for a long, long time because that way... He doesn't have to decide. The Jews won't be mad. and He doesn't have to do an injustice to Paul. I'll wait till Lysias comes down to hear your case. And he gave orders to centurion to keep Paul in custody and yet give him some freedom. Let his friends come and visit with him. Well, but some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla. There's the Jewish wife. She's wife number three who was a Jewess. And sent from Paul and heard him. Now, he had three different wives. They were all princesses. Now, 
Drew, I will say this for Drusilla. If we believe Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, she was a very attractive lady. She already was married to a Sir, the king of a Syrian petty state. And when Felix saw her, he said, I got to have her for my wife. And so he kind of sent a message to her and said, don't you want to divorce that Syrian petty state king and marry me? And there was a magician by the name of Adamos, who talked to Drusilla, and Drusilla, beautiful as she was, says, you know, this petty Syrian state king is not all he's cracked up to be. And Felix names, Felix's name means happy, and he says to Drusilla, the beautiful Jewess, I will make you happy. My name is happy. It's my name is happy. So come to me, beautiful Drusilla, and I will make you happy. So there's beautiful Drusilla. If you write in your Bible, put beauty queen right by Drusilla, right there in your Bible, right beautiful. If you go by Josephus, she was something that Felix had to have. But notice, he heard him speak about his faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul discussed righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, Paul preached judgment. The resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Felix became frightened and said, much like Jesus, I think called Pilate to fear, go away for the present. And when I have time, I will summon you. And also, Luke adds in verse 26 that he kept calling Paul and having a discussion with him because the way the government ran back then, if you brought a bribe to Felix, he might end your case. And Paul wasn't willing to bribe him, so he'd call him up one more time, kind of hold out his hand, and Paul would never grease his palm. But I think Felix really did want to hear the gospel. I think he had a love-hate relationship with it. A lot of us do, don't we? A love-hate relationship with the gospel. We love the hope. We fear the judgment. But after two years passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. Now, you know how episodes stop? i got to set you up for the next episode. So you'll tune in next week. When a new governor comes, one of the first things he does is clean out all the old cases. He didn't want the old prisoners in the jail. That's Felix's prisoner. There's no real case against Paul. And so we will enter next week with the hope that now that Festus has come, that Paul will be released because he's starting with a clean slate and with his own prisoners. Right? I know, but I can't tell you until next week. If you're really curious, go ahead and read the next chapter, chapter 25, and see if Festus would allow Paul to be free because he is guilty of nothing. The only thing I've done, Paul said, is follow the way. And place my hope in the resurrection. Shouldn't that be the summary of all of our lives? Shouldn't that be the thing of which we're all guilty? 
When set on trial by our own lives, right or wrong, before the governor, don't we wish we could join the apostle in saying, the only thing I said that upset anybody was, he was raised from the dead. In obedience to the law and the prophets, I will follow him. I will follow the way. Let us pray. Oh God, may we all be on trial for the hope of the resurrection. For it all comes to that. Your power over death and sin and Satan himself. I pray tonight if there's anyone listening who needs that hope of the resurrection or needs to join Paul in becoming a follower of the way, that this would be the evening where they too say, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to have my hope in the resurrection. I'm not going to be a Felix and call the gospel up now and then and have a love and hate relationship. I will fear judgment enough. I will cross the line and call him the Christ. And in him, have hope. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.